Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in the second half of verse 29. Uh, Pastor Brandon covered 29 a couple weeks ago, but I wanted to grab that verse for the context. Um, So if you want to start flipping there, tapping there, otherwise navigating uh, via your devices uh, and other technology, uh, you can. If you've been paying attention in uh, this sermon series through 1 Corinthians, particularly since chapter 8, you might have noticed that there is a bit of a theme developing in this letter. The theme is freedom. It has to do with the freedom uh, that Christians have in in sexuality, in marriage, in food, in uh, working while holding the office of uh, pastor or apostle, all these different kinds of freedom that Christians have. We find that the Corinthians have started sort of abusing their freedom in, in many ways, uh, accusing one another of different things, and uh, it's, it has become very interesting in the Corinthian church uh, because they have taken the idea of Christian freedom to heart. And while that's a good thing, they've sort of taken it too far, and so Paul has to address them and say, look, just because you are free in Christ doesn't mean that you can now go sin all you want to. There are people that were saying, well, that means that we should, uh, be, we should, we should seek to, to be married, but we should be celibate in our marriages, or we should seek to, uh, not to marry ever, or these other things. And Paul was like, no, 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 there is freedom here. Let me help you to understand the freedom that you've been given. In this last couple of chapters, Paul has been talking about issues of conscience. See, there are things that we do in our lives that aren't clearly commanded or uh, commanded not to do in the scriptures, aren't there? Things like eating a meal. We aren't told you must eat, right? It's not a command from God, but we know we must eat, right? It's a a neutral thing. It's something we must do as human beings. It's something we can do as human beings. Things like entertainment are things we can do. God never commands us to be entertained, but it's out there for us and God, I believe that God has given us certain forms of inter- entertainment for our good and for joy and for happiness and, and all those wonderful things. The general thought in Corinth was simply if, if Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death, then we can kind of do whatever we please. And time and time again, Paul affirms the Christian's freedom in Christ. He never once implies that we should go back to living under the law as slaves. He never once denies that we are saved such that we no longer live under the weight of the law, which would crush us, which does crush us outside of Christ. If you've been an idolater, a blasphemer, an adulterer, or a liar, your sin no longer condemns you if you are in Christ. Every sin, present and future, was paid for by the blood of Christ that was poured out at the cross. If you trust in Jesus, the garment that you wear into heaven after your last breath will be white as snow. No blemish, no spot, no wrinkle. 
You won't need to go to purgatory to get cleaned up from your sins that you forgot about. That's scandalous grace right there. It's scandalous to tell people that all of their sins are forgiven. All of them. Whoa. That's scandalous. And it seems as though the Corinthians understood that. Some, of course, took it too far. They were living in sin, and Paul had to kind of rein them in. But others weren't sinning in outright and obvious ways. Rather, they had taken God's grace as a license to live without regard for others. Their consciences weren't bothered by eating, for example, meat sacrificed to idols or eating in an idol's temple because they were supposedly mature Christians. They knew that God was the only God and that idols were nothing. They knew that the meat they were eating was just meat and that meat was a gift from God. They're like, well, if this, if this is true, then we can do what we please without any real care for boundaries on those things. And for these people, there was no issue of conscience, and so they did what they wanted. For many Christians, especially those who have felt caged in by the more legalistic tendencies of others, for them it feels like this sort of freedom is the highest form of wisdom and understanding a Christian can attain. They claim with the Corinthians that all things are lawful. And that's where they stop. Two weeks ago, Pastor Brandon laid down the guardrails for Christian freedom, showing that neither lawlessness nor legalism are the path that we should take in the Christian life. But this begs the question, what is the path? Yes, there are some things that God forbids clearly, and there are others that he commands clearly. Yet the Christian life is not defined simply by these things. The Christian life is, is described by a lot of stuff that we can or may, may or may not do, we choose to do or not do. There's a, there's a lot of people who want to say that well, morality is black and white, and well, that is true in the eyes of God because he can see every single thing that is sin or not sin or whatever else, and he can see it perfectly. The reality is that while we can't see that, we sort of live in an interesting gray area a lot of the time. And so we choose. We, ch- we, we make choices. I, I made a choice today to wear these shoes this morning. Sometimes I wear different shoes. It was a choice. It was, it, and it's neutral. It's whatever. Like, I'm not sinning by wearing a certain pair of, pair of shoes or not. But I chose. And so we live our lives in this sort of in-between space a lot of the time, don't we? Each and every day, we make choices of what to do with our time, what to consume, what not to consume. Think about what shows to watch, what shows not to watch. Now, you may be informed by the scriptures on those things, but whether you watch a show or not, you're free. You can choose that. According to your conscience, you can choose what to watch, what not to watch. In this passage before us this morning, Paul continues to explore Christian freedom in that sort of gray space, that in-between space, that neutral space. I'm not even going to call it gray. It's a neutral space. And he finally speaks directly to the right use of Christian freedom. So this morning we're going to, again, be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 29, the second half of that, through 11.1, uh, which is really where the end of the chapter should be, but that's okay. Um, why don't you all stand with me as we read God's word this morning? It's interesting. Uh, I, I just said that the, the chapter break should be after verse 11, 
uh, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, you should know that I'm not saying that the Bible is, is in error. Uh, these verses, things like that, they're man-made. They're not inspired. And so I can feel free to criticize how the people that uh, translated the KJV uh, decided to divide their chapters. It's fine. But we do believe that God's word is in, inspired and inerrant, and so we stand to confer upon it the, the respect and honor that it deserves. And so we're going to read the second half of verse 29 through 11.1. It says this, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you more clearly this morning. That you would help us to see more clearly the freedom that you've given us and its right use. For Lord, we know that you have not given us freedom for our own sakes, for our own use, but for the use that we can bring toward others, the use of giving glory to you, the use of helping others along their journey with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take our eyes off of ourselves, help us to see the right use of that freedom, help us to take our eyes and place them firmly on Christ and through Christ and toward others. Lord, we thank you for this. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. As a, uh, as a pastor, I, when I talk about Christian freedom and freedom of conscience, I've realized that there are kind of two stereotypes that kind of come out of the woodwork. The first group acts as if you're going to turn the church into a brothel if you leave anything up to the individual conscience of the Christian. Have you met these people? Somebody tell me you met these people. All right, I know these people. But I know the second group too. The second group acts like you're going to nullify the blood of Christ if you provide any guardrails to individual freedom. You met those people too? Yeah. It's very interesting. These two groups tend to just kind of come out of the woodwork whenever you start talking about Christian freedom. And if you err on either side, the other, like one of them is just going to pummel you at the end of the sermon. I have to say that it is my sincerest pleasure to know that over the past month, Brandon and I have probably created some friction for both groups to one degree or another. I love that. It makes me happy. I believe that God's word generally works this way. Those who think that they are absolutely right find that they have not been absolutely right. The people who think that they have it absolutely perfectly sort of outlined, God's word comes in and says, mm, maybe you should think about it a different way. Constantly being refined. And so where we take things to extremes, God, God's word consistently presents a better way. And I'm not talking about moderation. I'm talking about a truly better way. We often consider how Christian freedom applies to us as Pastor Brandon made clear a couple of weeks ago, he's talking about these things. And this comes out in concerns about whether we can or cannot do certain things. It's pretty common, right? 
I mean, even as mature Christians, I'm sure some of you get these questions from others. Can I insert the blank? Or, this is my, this is my favorite one, you're not supposed to insert the blank, are you? You're not supposed to do this, are you? Now, the first one, can I do this thing, is usually because we want to do something for ourselves. It would make us feel good if, if somebody would give us permission, right? We think we probably shouldn't, but we're coming to the pastor because if he tells us we can, we're good to go. The other one, you're not supposed to do this, are you? That's because it makes us feel good to judge others. It's very me-centric. All these questions are very me-centric. They're about what I can do. They're about me judging other people and feeling good that I'm right. Now, I admit that this isn't always true. Like, a lot of people ask earnestly, like, should I do this? Can I do this? And, and look, I'm not trying to stop you from asking those questions. But sometimes this comes out of a heart that's really acting about, like, in a selfish way. It's acting in a, in a way that's about me. These are good questions to ask sometimes, but sometimes it reveals a heart that's self-centered because you're worried about your personal holiness, your personal happiness, or maybe your personal rightness. You, you are the center of all of these questions. But Paul shows us a better way in this passage. It's a better way that we'll continue to talk about through the next several chapters, Again, I believe that the Word of God generally works like this. When we take things to extremes, we take two things and we plot a, a line. You might think that, for example, antinomian, uh, antinomianism or lawlessness on one side and then uh, legalism on the other side is this continuum and the Christian way is somewhere in the middle. But I want to tell you that both antinomianism and legalism are lies from Satan and taking a little bit from both is not okay. The Word of God often presents to us a third and better way. It's not on a line. It's over here somewhere. It's not in between. It's something else entirely. And that's what Paul is getting at with these verses. He's presenting to us a better way. Read with me in verses 29 through 30. Just the second half there, it says, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, I admit that these verses are difficult because you could easily read them as Paul promoting the sort of libertarian Christian freedom that the Corinthians were already practicing. But that wouldn't really make sense because he just spent verse 28 uh, and, and the first half of 29 making an argument that the Corinthians should not participate in idol worship. So while these verses, especially verse 30, in my opinion, are notoriously difficult uh, for pastors and scholars and theologians, I believe we can firmly conclude that our Christian freedom is not determined by someone else's conscience. The rhetorical question asked by Paul here in verse 29, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? The answer is it should not. Paul is making it clear that when we exercise our freedom to do something, we may also exercise our freedom not to do that same thing for the sake of another person. In doing so, we don't change our minds on the subject. We aren't 
hooking our conscience up or our liberty up to someone else's conscience. We still maintain our freedom whether we choose to do something or choose not to do something. Am I making some sense? Like in, in the United States, we have the freedom of speech. I was going to ask, like I was going to pull the audience uh, <laughs> today, but, uh, but I won't do that. Uh, but I'll give you the rhetorical question. What gives us that freedom? The freedom of speech. Some of you would say, oh, I know this one, the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment. You'd be wrong. That's not how freedom works. The First Amendment exists to ensure that our freedom of speech is not removed from us or infringed upon by the government. The Bill of Rights is limitations upon the government so that they cannot take from us or infringe upon our freedom. We have the freedom of speech because we can think and we can speak according to our nature, which was given to us by God. We have freedom because we are human beings, period. You're free. There's something in our nature there. Now, we can talk about sin nature and how we're, sin, we're slaves to sin. I'm not saying we are not slaves to sin by default, but... What I am saying is that this freedom of speech that we have is given to us by God. And yet, simply because you possess the freedom to speak does not mean you always exercise that right, correct? In meetings at work, I, I operate in one of three modes. One, I lead the meeting. I'm the one doing most of the talking, and others are listening and asking me, asking me questions. The second mode, I participate in the meeting. I speak less. I ask questions. I participate in the conversation sort of equally with others. The third mode, I'm silent. I listen and I receive information. Now, I might go between these different modes during a meeting and I happily do so willingly. Sometimes I shut up and listen, even though I could be speaking. In that moment, I maintain my freedom of speech, but I refrain from exercising it. I could be talking, I'm free to do so, but I choose not to. Or perhaps more simply, uh, I may refrain from eating fried chicken in front of my vegan friend who believes that modern farming and production methods are immoral. But that doesn't mean that my friend now rules my conscience. And on, on another day, in another circumstance, you might find me at Bojangles with a delicious chicken biscuit with cheese. Amen. I remain free either way, whether I choose to partake or I refrain from partaking. My liberty is not determined by my friend's conscience. Likewise, Paul is affirming the freedom of the individual Christian conscience while asking the Corinthians to forego that freedom for the sake of others at certain times. My friends, you would do well to take this to heart. You might think that you're right, but treating other people like they're in sin when they're acting with a clear conscience is a surefire way to cause division and strife. You may believe that your political party is right, but it would be ignorant at best and evil at worst to accuse a brother or sister in Christ of sin simply because they voted for someone different than you thought they sh that they should. This is an opportunity for a conversation, not an accusation. In that conversation, you may find that your, your friend is wrong. Your friend may find that they are wrong. God may bind their conscience, and they may repent of an unknown sin. 
but it is also likely that you will both have considered the scriptures and concluded that different courses of action were permissible or correct. This is an opportunity at that point for charity, not division. You may believe that smoking or drinking or eating cheeseburgers or not running at least a mile every day is wrong, but these are matters of conscience, aren't they? You may believe that it is wrong for a Christian to abstain from voting. That's a matter of conscience. You can have a conversation, but you cannot accuse them of sin until you have understood where they stand on those matters, why they are doing what they're doing. We cannot find our consciences bound by others, and we cannot then try to bind others' conscience to our own. There is freedom of Christian conscience. Now, your conscience should be informed by the Scriptures, by the Holy Spirit within you, by Christian prudence and wisdom, but remember that your conscience does not and cannot bind others. God's Word may bind another's conscience, no doubt, and it should. But your conscience cannot bind others. We all have personal convictions, but we would do well not to let those personal convictions become a law that crushes others. Denouncing true brothers and sisters in Christ who have considered the glory of God and the good of others, and they have exercised their Christian freedom differently than we do, is not the way to build greater unity in the body of Christ. We must each hold fast to our own convictions while allowing for differences in conscience amongst gospel-believing Christians. Y'all getting quiet now. Lest you think that I'm becoming an antinomian, let me state clearly that we are not to tolerate high-handed sin or heresy, but we should restore erring brothers and sisters in a spirit of love and gentleness. There's so much division in the church over matters of conscience. Perhaps we would do well to go back to God's law and see that we are all in error. Perhaps it would be better for us to have conversations than to make accusations. But Paul says, why should my liberty be determined by anyone else's conscience? The answer is it is not. But let me also state clearly that while our Christian freedom is not limited by the consciences of others, it is clearly and certainly informed by the word of God and by the law of love. And that's really what Paul is getting at in the, in the passage before us this morning. He's beginning to show us a better way, a less self-centered way to practice Christian freedom. And so he goes on, verses 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone, everything and every, everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. As I looked at these verses, I was reminded of the summary of the law that Jesus gives in Matthew 22. First, Love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Then, love your neighbor as yourself. In these verses in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the same law, the law of love, to guide our practice of Christian freedom. Rather than encouraging us to lawlessness or to legalistic piety, he turns the whole paradigm on its head 
and tells us not to do whatever is best for us, but whatever glorifies God and works toward the good of others. This is the better way. It's not antinomianism. It's not lawlessness. It's not legalism. It's love. It's the better way. It's the same way that we're going to consistently talk about in this coming chapters. While legalism and antinomianism are two sides of this me-centered use of Christian freedom, Paul says, no, get out of that mode. Stop thinking of yourselves every time that you make a choice. Start thinking about the glory of God and the good of others. Whatever you do, he says, whatever you do. He's not just talking about food or drink. He talks about everything. Whatever you do, do all, everything, to the glory of God. This is the first way that Paul informs our use of Christian freedom, and it's all-encompassing. Note that he's moved on beyond food and drink. But interestingly, John Piper famously preached a sermon, I've forgotten uh, what what the name of it was, where he spoke about drinking orange juice to the glory of God. I think that was actually like the main, like, thrust of the whole sermon, like he spent 30 minutes or something like that just talking about drinking orange juice to the glory of God. Very inventive. I, I wish I'd thought of it. But man, that thing is, that, that sermon has stuck with me for years. We can even do the most mundane things to the glory of God, can't we? Even just now, like taking a deep breath. I'm reminded that this air that I breathe is provided by God himself. It's a gift. That the lungs that I use to breathe that air are a gift. And so we can, we can have this mentality about us where we glorify God in thanksgiving. So the first way I believe that we can glorify God with our choices, with our conscience, the, those things that we do that maybe stand outside of the clear command of Scripture we can glorify God in thanksgiving. This is why Christians have made, uh, generally speaking, a practice uh, of praying before we eat. Before eating, we stop for a moment and we thank God who provided everything in the meal and even the hands that prepared it. I want to be clear. We thank God for the hands that prepared it. Right? So you have the food itself, and then you have the person who made that food, and you thank God for them because they too were created by God and are a gift from God to you. And even if you don't pray outside, out loud, uh, approaching each meal with a, th- a sense of thanksgiving and, and gratefulness is a great habit, isn't it? It draws your heart in that moment into worship as you enjoy that which God has provided And the same is true of everything that we do. Before you start your workday, remember that God has given you that work to do as a means of providing for you and your family. It is a gift from God that you have work to do, my friends. That's a hard thing for some of you. Some of you wake up and you dread your job. You think that it's a curse. No, it's a gift. It might be difficult, there might be all sorts of things going wrong, but it is a gift. It might be a sanctifying gift. <laughs> it might be one of those moments where you, where you get up in the morning and you go, okay, Lord, uh, I'm going back into the crucible. How will you refine me today? Uh, <laughs> I've been there. I've been there. 
But to even thank God for that, that in that moment, when you come up up against something and it causes friction for you and it's painful, to say, Lord, thank you for refining me. Man, if we could adopt that sort of mentality, how far might we go? Because if you're like me, it's easy to wake up in the morning and feel immediately overwhelmed by everything you have to do. You wake up and you go, man, I I don't know how I'm going to get it all done, Lord. You start dreading all the different things. But stopping to give thanks for breath in your lungs and the good things that you have and all that work that you have to do are a good way to remember whose day it is and who made it and that it's a gift. This approach to life is an incredible safeguard against sin as well. If you can't give thanks for the thing that you are about to do, it may be that you are sinning. Simple. If you can't give thanks for the thing you're about to do, you may be sinning. This is a great safeguard related to entertainment in particular. Can you thank God for the movie you're about to watch? Somebody got stuck by that one. Can you thank God for the music you're listening to? Can you thank God for Instagram or YouTube or Facebook? Can you thank God for the conversations that you're having there? Can you thank God for the things that you're consuming and scrolling through and liking on your social media platform of choice? Can you thank God for those things? Can you rightly thank God for those things? Because look, let's be real, your conscience can become seared. When you look at God's word, do you go, yes, I can consume this entertainment, this thing, whatever it is, with thanksgiving, or is it sin to me? Again, this is a matter of conscience. I admit personally that I don't always consider thanking God first and foremost, especially when I'm having a bad day. But developing that instinct to pray or approach whatever you're about to do with a thankful attitude can shift your perspective. You realize that God is not surprised by your difficulty and that he will provide everything you need when you need it. With this attitude, we seek the glory of God. But I think there's more to this passage than simple attitude. Look, it'd be easy to preach this sermon. It'd be easy to preach this passage and go, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That means be thankful. And that would be it. It'd be easy to talk about things like that, but I don't think that's all that's in view. In the context of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking about not some internal thing, but external action. Paul's talking about what happens out here, not just what happens in here. When Paul says, do all to the glory of God, I believe he is speaking about external actions which lead to the glorification of God by others. That's a heavier ask. You thought that approaching everything with thankfulness was hard to do? I challenge you to go beyond it. The question then is not simply, what can I do with thanksgiving in my heart for myself? No. What can I do to induce others to give greater degrees of worship, respect, honor, and glory to God is the better question. This is not an easy thing to check off your to-do list, is it? It's a way of life. 
It's a way of thinking and considering your actions such that others might see Christ in you and glorify God because of it. My friends, that is what Christian freedom is all about. It's not about can I or can't I. It's about doing whatever gives the most glory to God. If you aim your Christian freedom at the glory of God and the good of others, you will be doing well in your life. Paul goes on to mention that not causing, uh, causing offense uh, is one of his principles in this passage, and I, I admit that this is sticky. <laughs> it's a difficult thing when Paul says don't, not to cause offense. Give no offense because our culture is offended <laughs> constantly. <laughs> like it, Our culture isn't just easily offendable. It's just offended all the time. And so in light of that, I want to be clear that Paul is not saying that we should avoid all offense toward anyone, anywhere, about anything. Right? You can't make that your rule for Christian life. After all, the gospel causes offense, doesn't it? I mean, it's offensive to be called a sinner. It's offensive to the modern mind to think that God exists or that he can declare that which is right or true. It's offensive to the unbeliever that they would need a savior. It's offensive that our highest goal would be the glory of God. The world is offended by that. Paul isn't trying to get us to tiptoe around so that no one is offended by the truth. That's not what's going on here. And neither is he telling us to be overly concerned about possibly causing offense to someone out there somewhere. A simple illustration of this is for clothing. Men, if you were invited to a black tie event, you would wear a tuxedo or a dinner jacket. That is what you would wear. You would wear a black tie and French cuffs with cufflinks. Showing up in a band tee, jeans and Crocs would be offensive. It would dishonor the host and the person who invited you. That's offensive. But that doesn't mean you can never wear a band tee, jeans, and Crocs. That might be what you normally do, in fact. But you know that at a certain occasion, you would give offense by wearing what you normally wear. And so you change it up. So as not to cause unnecessary offense. Likewise, if you know that certain actions, words, or behaviors might give offense to the people around you, you will put the spotlight more on God and less on yourself if you determine not to exercise your freedom in those areas for a time. This is left to your conscience, Christian. I'm not sitting around going, hey, like, every single decision you have to be absolutely focused in and go, like, well, this person could be offended by this and this person could be offended by this. No. But if you know that you're in a group of people where people will be offended by those things that you normally do, you might want to use your freedom not to do those things for their good and for the glory of God. Look, this is complicated for us because of social media. Many of you post your entire lives online for everyone to see. 
remember that you are inviting to the whole world to look at your life. If you wanted to share things with just a small group of friends, you'd have a private account or you'd use the mechanisms in place to limit who can see what. No. You want the platform and the visibility. You want the likes. You want the followers. But to whom are you drawing attention? Is it to you or to God? Are you glorifying God in what you post, repost, and like? Or are you giving unnecessary offense? It's easy to figure out what might offend someone if we're sitting here in a room together, isn't it? Right? Easy to figure that out because I know most of you to some degree. I know what may or may not offend you. I could do my best not to give unnecessary offense to you. In fact, I do that as I stand in the pulpit. I don't always talk like this. So it's easy to do that in this context. Just a bunch of people sitting in a room. It's harder to figure that out when you know that you're being recorded on a podcast or when you know that you're going to post on social media and everybody in the world is going to see it. And you have to worry about, am I causing unnecessary offense to all those people out there? I'm not saying that you have to lock down everything on social media, but think about it. Consider it. I'm not trying to bind your conscience never to post to social media again. Think about it. Who are you representing? And are you causing unnecessary offense? Are you causing offense that would not allow you to gain a hearing for the gospel? Because ultimately that's the point of everything that Paul is saying here. 1 Corinthians 10.33 I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Christian, remember what is at stake when you use your freedom. What if by seeking the glory of God in your life, you become the means by which one individual is saved? Look, I'm not saying that you save people, but God uses means. Would it be worth all the times that you forwent your freedom and sought the good of others above yourself to save one eternal soul? Would it be worth it? Now, some of you might be having a hard time answering that question, but you might need to be reminded of what it means to be in Christ. It means that there is hope beyond this life. It means that God is working all things for our good. And it means that every momentary pleasure you give up here for the glory of God and the good of others will be re replaced by eternal pleasure at the right hand of God forever. So yes, the answer is yes. Of course it would be worth it. If one eternal soul was exchanged for your momentary restraint, yes, it's worth it. 1,000 times over, it's worth it. What if there were untold numbers of thousands who were affected by your life? And there are. Each of you brushes past people on a daily basis. 
Are you using your freedom for the glory of God and their good or for your own selfish gain? The problem is that we are so selfish with our freedom that we don't even stop to consider how our actions might affect those around us. We eat and we drink and we go about our lives living in Christian freedom without a single care for others. Look, look, I know it's not intentional. I know it's not intentional. It's just thoughtless. It's indwelling sin in us, leading us to believe that the freedom that God has given us is there for us rather than the purpose for which it was given. This here and now is a call to resist that temptation. In a world where we are bid to look inward more and more and more, the antidote is to look outward to God and then others. Love is the better way. Leave antinomianism, leave legalism behind. Live in love. That's the better way. Love isn't about you. That's a good thing. Later in this letter, Paul wrote a a phrase that we would do well to remember. Let all things be done for building up. All things. He doesn't leave anything out there, just like he doesn't leave anything out here. Let all things be done for building up. This is really the whole point of chapters 8 through 10. When it comes to matters of individual conscience, we are free. But we must let love influence the use of our freedom. But some of you, maybe many of you, may wonder how you can do this in your everyday lives. To close out this part of his letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes a simple sentence. It encapsulates Christian discipleship in such a neat little package. 1 Corinthians 11.1 Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I have to admit, it takes a pretty pretty confident person to write those words. Can you imagine Paul writing that? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Man, if I, if I didn't know that the Holy Spirit inspired those words, I might chalk it up to Paul being a little too prideful in his Christian walk. You know what I mean? But laying that aside, I, I believe that this is really a clear picture of Christian discipleship in a neat little package. This was actually the subject of our men's breakfast just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and, and I don't believe it's a coincidence that we're looking at it again today. Uh, one point that I made there, which also applies here, is that a disciple is a follower. Paul uses the word imitator, one who does as others do, follower, same kind of mentality. Jesus, when he grabbed his disciples, he found his disciples, he he took them with him. What did he do? He had them follow him, literally, walking around. He taught them with his mouth and showed them with his life. Discipleship. One point that I made at our our breakfast, which also... uh, something that we should consider here is that, again, like we should find ways to, to do what Jesus did, right? His model of discipleship, even Paul's model of discipleship. How do we do what Jesus did? And so I encouraged all of the men to find other men to come alongside, to, that they would go out and find 
people who they could follow as good examples of Christ. The same thing that Paul is saying here. He's saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's, a, it's, it's difficult, I admit, to do discipleship kind of on your own. You just go to the scriptures and you read them and you try to figure out how it applies to your life. That's a good first step, y'all. I'm not, I'm not tearing that down. But it's difficult to do that by yourself. And so Jesus, in his example, Paul, in, in his example here, says, imitate others who are godly men and women. Imitate them. Do what they do. Look, discipleship, yes, it involves teaching from pastors like me and Pastor Brandon, but even more, it involves creating relationships with mature Christian men and women who will tell you with their mouth and show you with their lives what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's a lot easier to figure out what your life is supposed to look like when you can look at somebody else and go, I'm going to just kind of do what they do because they seem to be doing it well. I'm reading the Word and what they do kind of lines up with this, and it seems like that's a great way to apply it. This is what Paul, what Paul is saying. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Far easier to have someone show you how to live than it is to just read about it and try to do it. Ask any, uh, any guitarist who was self-taught in the pre-YouTube days. <laughs> if you were trying to be a musician and and you were like, well, I don't even know where to start. Well, you'd, get a, you'd, well, you'd save up your money. You'd go down to the, the corner store, wherever you could. You'd buy a guitar, and you'd go, what do I do with this thing? And then you'd just sit there, and you'd listen to the music on the radio, and you'd try to figure out what hand motions they were making. Like, how do, you, how do I even put this thing in my lap is a question that I think people were probably asking. Right? How do I, how do, I do this? But if you had a teacher, if you had a teacher who would show you, not just tell you what to do, who would show you what to do, make headway so fast. You become much more proficient on your instrument. You, be, you, you rocket past where you could be if you were just doing it on your own. Why do we think that the Christian life would be anything different than that? We often try, try to like over-spiritualize it. It's like, well, if I have the Bible and the Holy Spirit, then I can do it on my own. That's not how God set up the world. He gave us the church. And while the church is certainly not part of the Trinity, uh, Look, you combine the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the church in your daily life, man, you can go far in discipleship. You learn very quickly what it means to be a mature Christian man or woman when you can look at others and go, wow, they seem to be living according to this. Yeah, that means, look, that means if, if somebody that you know has a, a vibrant prayer life, you're like, man, that person is, really mature in that area of their life, and they get up at 4 a.m. to pray every morning so that they have quiet time, you may want to adopt that practice. It's not that it's in here. It doesn't say get up at 4 a.m. to pray. It doesn't say that. But you may want to adopt that practice if you would like to advance in, in prayer in your life. You may find that that doesn't work for you, but at least you tried it. You figured out what didn't work. Better to follow someone else's example in these things than it is to just go try to figure it out on your own. So combining that study of the scriptures, the teaching of the church, and godly examples and living is discipleship as God intended it. If you're asking, how should I use my Christian freedom for the good of others and the glory of God? Look at, look at the lives of others who seem to do that. 
Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, and says, it says, let us consider, consider how to stir one another, sorry, how to stir one another up for, uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. I would leave you with this. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. The day is drawing nearer, my friends. It draws ever nearer. We don't know when it is, but we know it draws nearer every single moment. So don't use your freedom for selfish pursuits, but stir one another up to love and good works. And then, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.